Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight, my guest is Adam Mystery. Before I bring him on, I want to tell you about an amazing opportunity to mine your own cryptocurrency. With the new Helium Miner, you can get it now for free. By deploying a simple Helium hotspot in your home or office, you can provide your city with miles of low-power network coverage for billions of devices and earn a new cryptocurrency, HNT. Mining HNT with hotspots is done via radio technology and not expensive or wasteful GPUs. The hotspots work together to form a new uh, global wireless network to undertake proof of coverage. You can start earning cryptocurrency by connecting your hotspot to the network with your mobile phone and that's it. You're going to receive a phone call after you sign up to verify your order before they ship it, so uh, be sure you answer that call. If you have any questions about using the miner or getting it shipped, we have a Telegram chat now in the description you can access if you have any questions. Just click that link in the description to get your free hotspot with free shipping today. Also, subscribe to Forbidden Knowledge News on lbrry.com. It's our official backup channel. We also have a brand new show called Beyond Classified. It's exclusively on Rockfin, which is an amazing new uncensored platform for free-thinking content creators and independent media. And finally, you can now get tickets to Forbidden Knowledge NewsCon 2021. It's going to be April 2nd, 3rd, and 4th with 12 amazing presenters. Just visit our website, ForbiddenKnowledge.News, to check out this year's awesome lineup and get your tickets today. All those links are in the description. Tonight, I want to welcome to the show Adam Mystery. He has been studying Western esotericism for more than 10 years. This includes such topics as internal alchemy, hermetic Kabbalah, magic, and Gnosticism. He is not officially affiliated with any society or group, and his main goal is to increase public awareness of the underground traditions that have formed through the centuries and to highlight what techniques they use to move towards their goals. Adam, welcome. How are you doing tonight? Howdy. <laughs> I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. That's good. Good. Yeah, welcome. I've been looking for, uh, forward to tonight because we're going to be discussing some of my favorite stuff, magic, the occult, the nature of mm-hmm. reality that wasn't taught to you at school growing up, and yes. how religion essentially has covered up and hidden our true mm-hmm. history, our abilities, and spiritual practices. Uh, mm-hmm. I look at magic as a tool, basically, just like a knife. I think it can be used for good or bad. It's just about how you personally use it in your life. So uh, that being said, I'd like to know what got you interested in magic and in practicing magic. Well, that's an interesting question. Well, I know I was always, I was always, it's one of those things. I don't know it, it sound, if it sounds pretentious, like I was born, I was born wanting this, but I heard, yeah, I don't know. Like, I've always been interested in stuff like that. I've always, like, if I didn't go into magic, I probably would have been into something like, you know, I would have gotten into it somehow, like through the self-improvement groups or things like that. Like, I always had this fascination with, you know, as a kid, like, if we only use 10% of our mind, you know, we all have that as a kid. If we only use 10% of our minds, but how do we? And like, what if, like, there was all the, I just had all of these questions continuously churning, churning in me. And I just, that thirst just, yeah, perhaps that's the best way to articulate it. I had, I had this thirst and just kept me looking, 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 you know, going to a Reiki place, going to a meditation place, going to Buddhism, going to Kundalini yoga. And then eventually I 
connected to uh, connected to something and then i was like oh hello what's going on here and that's and that's all you need you know everyone has their thing it's like that one thread and then you start to pull at it and then it takes you down the rabbit hole and then you start reading all kinds of things and then you know you find out about you know hermetic order of the golden dawn and rosicrucians and because I, I i'm one of those people who you know in my teens i really got into conspiracy theories and so I, I I did the conspirituality route, as you can say. It's like you know you you learn a bunch of things, then you're like, but what did the Freemasons do? Yeah. And then eventually you get to like, oh wait a second, what's what's ritual magic? And then you just kind of go down the rabbit hole, and it's like, oh, very well then. <laughs> yeah, that's how it <laughs> kind of so, started with me. You start with the conspiracies, and then you go down the yeah. other rabbit holes that it leads you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I always had a spiritual base. Like, I mean, I was raised, you know, Anglican Christian, but my mum converted to Buddhism when I was 10 years old. And so I had this interesting divide between Christianity and Buddhism. And so I had this, I don't know, I wasn't contained by a, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't stuck or I didn't have a cage. There was kind of like, like a wedge that allowed me to kind of slip through two worlds and kind of get to other things. I guess that's how you can describe it. Yeah, definitely. That's cool. Um, so maybe just define for you, what is, what is magic? Um, I see it kind of as using unseen energies in ourselves and all around us to be able to kind of manipulate that for a certain outcome. Would you say that's kind of accurate? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's hard as well because there's, I don't know if you'd like to class it as different types of magic or different ways of looking at it. In the end, uh, like, you know, when, when I first started, I kind of had, I don't know, maybe one, maybe an opinion like that or an idea like that. And then I refined or then I changed. And now it's just like, yeah, magic is magic. It's a path and you can use it in the end. Yeah, it's that it's that expression of will using your will, uh, using your will, your conscious will to manipulate certain properties. Uh, usually it begins with things inside your body energies inside your body and then they project outwards or you know you can start with some outward kind of leaning magics unknown enchantments or curses or some kind of uh you know like the secret manifestation you could say itself as a type of magic it's it's simple i mean but then there's this other side of magic i think i i always like to say there's instead of dividing magic up into all these different types like ceremonial and elemental and astral or in, instead of saying black and white it's better to say high magic and low magic. So high magic is very specific. High magic, its aim is regeneration, reconciliation, and reintegration. And then low magic is just everything else. <laughs> so what types of uh, magic are you regularly practicing? With me, well, it's I, I'd like to say I practice high magic, <laughs> but a lot of my practice itself is usually geared toward, obviously I do specific meditations and I use specific uh, intoning mantra, mantras, kind of Gnostic mantras, things like that. Certain alchemic, internal alchemical practices I do and uh, some sort of, also some ceremonial workings with angels because it's good to work with angels and gods. The, one of the main reasons, even if you don't have, you know, anything, an aim 
like, you know, I want to, you know, just summon up an angel randomly or something or work with that energy, that energy, that heavenly energy. Even if you don't have an aim, like, you know, there's so many, you can read so many books. It's like work with Odin if you want this or Freya if you want this or Zeus if you want this. You don't necessarily need an aim. You can just like call upon, I don't know, gods or angels to and just say, you know, I want to give a light to humanity or something or hope, you know joy to all beings, something like that, something like that's nice. But the reason you, the real reason you work with gods and angels is because it's uh, for the same reason, you know, you don't want your kids hanging out with the bad kids at school. It's vibratory affinity. The more you work with higher celestial entities, there's a certain vibration that you could say rubs off of, on you. And so then magic becomes more and more practical the more you do it. The more, you know, the more you work with entities like that, the more your vibration begins to mimic their vibration and, you know, vice versa. If you work with demons, I see. you better, you better be yeah. careful of what you wish for. I want to break down each of those things that you mentioned. Um, let's start with um, Gnosticism for those that aren't really familiar. What would be like some of the core beliefs behind Gnosticism? Gnosticism is interesting because, uh, I mean, there's a debate at the moment in the scholaristic world. But, and scholars are very important on one level, but on another level, they can only do their work by physical means. But in the scholaristic world, there's a debate on if Gnosticism ever was a thing. But nonetheless, I think it was a thing. <laughs> the whole belief, Gnosticism, its backbone, like a lot of other traditions, has this, uh, it's, it, it has a cosmology that looks at the world in kind of like many dimensions that all start at an absolute source. And it's kind of, to use something tactile, it's like, you know, one of those fancy fountains at like a mansion that has many tiers. So you have like, there's the top and the top emanates and it fills in a bowl, which is like a dimension. And then that bowl fills up and it ushers over more water into this other bowl, which then fills up and then ushers into a low dimension. So it's kind of like that. It's like, there's this one absolute divine something or divine. Eh, there's something absolute. In, uh, Do you consider in that source? Space. Source, maybe? Yeah, source. You could, you could call it the A-N. You could call it the illuminating void. If you're into Norse paganism, you could call it the Ganunga gap. But it's the this illuminating void. It's not the light. It precedes the light. It's where the light comes from. That's why it's usually seen as like a void black or like dark fire is sometimes used as that, a symbol of that highest thing or sometimes nothing. Sometimes uh, it's said in like ancient, maybe Mediterranean traditions, they would have like a God just pointing upwards and it's like profane people would worship the God, but it's people who were initiated knew that pointing upwards meant that it's something higher, but there's that source. And then out of that source energy or spirit and uh, consciousness issues love, force, issues, and then that condenses down, condenses down, condenses down into all the many dimensions, into mental matter, causal matter, astral matter, and then eventually we get this physical world where we are right now. So that would be a backbone kind of cosmology of Gnosticism, but a real, uh, the main difference between a Gnostic and a Christian, a lot of the Gnostic texts we have nowadays, or texts that they say are Gnostic, have a Christian dynamic to them. They all, you know, revere the Christ and see Christ as a cool dude, Jesus, but they have a interesting relationship with the children of Israel, shall we say. They don't really like the Israeli God. So they like Jesus, but the their main shtick is the Israeli God is a type of mega demon uh, or a demonic God in a way that then it's it's almost like, you know how people are into simulation theory nowadays, and then you've got to ask, but who made the simulation? 
to the Gnostics, it would be the Demiurge. There's this great being that created a, you could call it a simulated universe. And in that universe, we then become trapped. So our physical bodies are of this universe, and but our spirit is from a different place. We, what is that, what's the line from Jesus? We, you may live in this world, but you do not belong of, right. of this world. Yeah. You're like not that. of the world yet. That, yeah, you're not of the world. So it's it's that kind of connotation. So they had a lot of people neg on them and they see them as very pessimistic because the some of them can seem in that sense very world-hating. But in the end, you have to live in the world. So to a degree, you have to find a way to balance your life in this world. A lot of I so I would disagree with the absolute, you know, world-hating kind of view of it. It's more that they were, I don't know. If you get trapped on a desert island, there are two types of people. The one type of person who just immediately tries to knock down a tree and get a bunch of branches and make a raft and just get off. And then there's the kind of guy who's like, hey, whoa, Dave, hold up. Let's uh, let's explore around the island. You know, maybe go into the island, maybe find a water source, maybe discover. So there are other traditions. The Gnostics are of that tradition. They just want to escape the simulation just immediately. Well, the more Whereas, I look at the world, it, it seems like we're in a simulation. I mean, the more yeah. I learn, it's, it's crazy. You know, it, it mm. really kind of points in that direction. Mm, mm, mm. So you could say that's the Gnostics. I really like them in that sense. They're kind of like the prototype. They're the the proto simulation theory boys who are trying to escape. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And you mentioned internal alchemy. Could you tell us a little mm. bit what, what was involved in that? Yeah. So this is an interesting tradition. There's there's Eastern alchemy and there's Western alchemy, and they both have internal and external traditions. But maybe we should degree, start there. What, what's the difference between the Eastern and Western traditions? And then we can get into the alchemy. Well, I mean, at their core, you could say there is no difference. I but see. I mean, a lot of those things is there. There's somewhat societal differences. There may be um, somewhat things that are developed first or things that are developed within the human in a different way. Because, well, I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I want to get all political, but... S Esoterically, occultists see that there are different races and different races have different potentialities that develop in different ways. To use an example, uh, the god Apollo, the Greek god Apollo, the god of the sun, he was a god of many things. He was also a god of music, but he was also a god of race. So the idea is, as you can see, humanity as like a musical composition uh, that with all the races being different notes. Yeah, some notes are high, some notes are low, but it's when we all come together, we create a harmony. And when there's a disharmony, and you know, you don't want one just flat note to slam down. That's not a that's not a, a, a nice unless you're really into ambient. That's not something that you're you, yeah. uh, you, 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 is super nice to listen to. But nonetheless, different races may develop in different ways. That's not to say that if you're uh, you know, if, if you're a Caucasian, you can't do yoga, or if you're from, you know, if you're Chinese, you can't be into the Norse mysteries. It just means that the at the deepest level of those mysteries, there's something that's geared towards people who have the blood of that tradition. So I myself, I quite enjoy the Norse mysteries and reading stuff about them every now and then, but like uh, only to, yeah, like I'm, 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 I'm Greek Persian. So uh, I, I do like the Norse mysteries, but I also like, you know, Greek hermetic alchemical stuff. Uh, you know, I, I have a, an affinity with, for Sufism and some Persian things as well. But uh, yeah, nonetheless, nonetheless, the original, you asked me about alchemy. Alchemy, right? Yes, yes. So, alchemy, external, internal. But the most, one of the things to say about alchemy is, you know, one of the maxims or the hermetic axiom of alchemy is as above, so below. 
So there's always this connection with alchemy to internal, external, above, below, like everything that is above, or sorry, everything in the physical world that you see is merely an emanation of something in a high dimension. So something happened in the high dimension and emanated down and then there's actions in the physical world. So you can change things in the physical world and that can have certain effects on internal things, but you can also do certain ritual practices. And if you know how, you can affect things in the internal world, which will then have a uh, physical effects. That's one of the keys of magic. But alchemy in this sense is then how it connects to magic and all of the other systems is it is the mixing of energies. It is the use of energies. It is the refining of energies, the arising of new energy, the condensing of energy, projecting of energy. All of that has to do with alchemy. So internal alchemy, you could say, is like the Western form of like Qigong or yoga or something. There, there's a lot of, uh, when, when you look at it, there's a lot of, even, there's a lot of elements that also border on certain tantric elements. You know, there's this, you know, the, the white queen and the red king and certain male, female polarities and doing, doing things like that and doing certain tantric techniques, but also there's doing things single as well. You refine certain energies within yourself. You refine the lead of the personality into the gold of the spirit. And to a degree, a lot of alchemical texts, there are some, there is, there is such a thing as physical alchemy and that has its value and its place, but uh, there are a lot, some texts that are internal, spiritual, metaphysical alchemy. And so, you know, you could say certain alchemists who were more that way inclined were alchemists like, you know, well, alchemists who did both were like Paracelsus or Michael Meyer and Robert Flood, perhaps, and things like that. But then as you get closer to modern history, you get more people practicing the internal side than the external side. And then there's this whole, uh, what would you call it, story of Western alchemy and all the names that pop up, like Nicholas Flamel, who's been romanticized in Harry Potter as a, right. in Harry Potter, he's the creator of the Philosopher's Stone, but he was a real alchemist. And uh, certain, I've mentioned Paracelsus and Basil Valentine, and one of the most interesting characters that comes from the world of alchemy, alchemy was a man named Fulcanelli, who was a French alchemist. And the reason why I put importance onto him is, is because he is the last great alchemist who was is said via that tradition of alchemy to have obtained the Philosopher's Stone. And when you look at Fulcanelli, he lived in the 1800s. So it's only a hundred years ago, and there's lots of interesting conspiracies around Fulcanelli about him kind of being like late 1900s and kind of appearing in the 1920s and certain uh, American majors being sent to Europe during World, War, World Wars to try and figure out and find out things about him because he may have had knowledge of nuclear armaments. And there's all these interesting, he was actually, uh, actually a real person as well. So there's this interesting mythology around the alchemists and their secret knowledge. But that knowledge that they had, they encoded in many strange manuals and with many metaphors and glyphs and alchemical hieroglyphs and it's all quite impenetrable if you don't i don't know if you don't have someone to kind of help guide you along or if you don't learn a, another system there are probably perhaps like you know learning certain magic systems or and then learning kabbalah and then kind of getting into alchemy you can learn it by correspondence or analogy but yeah it's a it's a very deep world to kind of throw yourself into yeah, it, it definitely seems that way. Um, I want to talk a little bit about magic versus religion. I, I find it interesting that 
many religions kind of just pick certain practices and magical practices and use those and integrate them into their religion, uh, you know, Abrahamic religions, but yet they, they demonize a lot of the magical practices that the original practices and, you know, mm-hmm. hide the information away. So for, for you, um, you know, most mystery religions are, are older than Christianity and the, you know, modern Abrahamic uh, religions. Um, so what, what do you think is the reason that, you know, these ancient traditions are so shunned and, and not, you know, were, were destroyed by when Christianity and these, some of these other religions came along? Mm. Yeah, so it's an interesting thing. I'm, once again, I'm just a simple, humble, practicing occultist. I'm not like a mega awesome his, his, historian or scholar, but I've had this my own little conspiracy or my hot take is, is, you know, Christianity somewhat happens. But if you look at religions prior to Christianity, they are very synthetic. Whenever they, the ancient religions meet each other, they always tend to mix and practices mix and interchange. One of the best examples really is actually in the East, is in China, Taoism and Buddhism. When they met, they obviously sometimes they fought, but there's whole Taoist sects that absorbed a lot of Buddhist knowledge and some, some Buddhist sects that took a lot of Taoist philosophy. In fact, some people have even said Zen Buddhism in Japan is basically kind of taken from China and it's just Taoist philosophy with like Buddhist practices and then a Jap- Japanese aesthetic kind of painted over the top of it. But you see, you know, interesting things, even in like talk about Abrahamic religions, even in the occult Hebraic traditions that the uh, rabbis used to study, like in their, in their traditions, all angels end with the name El, but it's like the highest angel in their tradition is an angel called Metatron. And Metatron does not end with an L. And in fact, if you look at the etymology or linguistics of the name, it's Greek, it's not Hebrew. And then, you know, you see other things in their tradition, like their demons, Asmodeus. Asmodeus is a Persian name. It's not, it's got nothing to do with Hebrew. So a lot of these ancient traditions, they, when Christianity first arose, Christianity was surprisingly synthetic. We have this holdover. We have Christianity as it is nowadays, but it's actually gone through a lot of different transformations at different points in time. And I, I'm actually a fan. I'm somewhat of a fan of Christianity from a Gnostic perspective as it's got, I kind of give it a soft past pass and kind of esoterically because it's, it's absorbed so much of other ancient traditions. And some people look at that and they say, oh, it stole these traditions. But I have a different perspective. I think the ancients were much smarter and they realized what was happening. And so they hid their traditions and guised them as Christianity and allowed them to continue and perpetuate. So Christianity itself is esoteric and mystical form. It has, you know, this kind of emanatory backbone. It has multiple heavens and it has, you know, you could say certain Egyptian or Mithraic kind of theology attached to it. Even Jesus himself, you could say there are some attributes of a hermetic Pythagorean initiate called Apollonius of Tiana, who lived around the same time as the historical Christ. Almost nothing is known about Apollonius, but a lot of his uh, his school was destroyed. But what is known is there are some things like he raised the dead and he did a lot of miracles that Jesus did. And so it seems that a lot of his tradition was just absorbed wholesale into Christianity. But what happened 
in Christianity is an interesting divorce is they basically became an intercessor. The, a lot of the old ancient traditions, those traditions were very organic and achieving enlightenment in those traditions was an organic process. Whereas with Christianity, there's this struggle happened between, uh, you could call it like revelation and tradition. So they had this tradition, which was based on revelation. But if you had a revelation and, you know, oh, I had a, I had a dream and Jesus came to me. What robe was he wearing? Oh, a red robe. Red. Well, this book here says that he only comes in a white robe. Therefore, it was the devil. And, you know, bad things start to happen. So the tradition starts to stomp revelation. And then if you don't have revelation, if you're not regenerating, if there's no reconciliation, if there's no true, if the aim of the tradition isn't being fulfilled or is only being fulfilled by the lay people and the lay people who, you know, go off into monasteries, they don't really connect with just the normal people of everyday lives. And then you just have a priest class, which then get absorbed into the political world and uh, become more or less, perhaps they, yeah, let's just say they practice more low magic than they did the high magic. Then you start to get this corruption happening over time. And this happens, it's almost like the decay of a religion. You, and you see this a lot nowadays, a lot of the religions that have decayed or seem to be, you just kind of look at it and you go, oh, that's the reason why. It's, you know, they, they start, they actually, at their core, there is something there. And there is, if you went into their deep doctrine and skullduggeried all the way through it, you probably would find things, but there's just so much corruption. Well, I would say there's so much kind of black magic corruption in a lot of these religions. They just kind of messed them all up. But in, in Christianity is like, I'd say the greatest example of a religion that has castrated its esoteric uh, core. Whereas there are other, like in Buddhism, you know, there are Buddhists who just, you know, prayer and fast and that's about it. But then there are, there, it's, it's a tradition of inner, of like inner, inner work. There are a lot of people who take it seriously, especially in Mahayana Buddhism, they meditate every day and it's like, that's good. But in Christianity, it's just have faith and that's it. And that's, uh, that, that's, a, that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. Hello, friends. Have you noticed how much podcasts have grown in popularity over the past few years? We definitely have, and it's insane. We have an opportunity for your business to take advantage of the exponential growth of our podcast by advertising with us. We've been riding the podcast growth wave for a few years now, and we want you to take advantage of this too. We have unbeatable pricing and advertising packages, and we work with you on an individual basis to produce the most effective ad possible for our audience. If you would like to advertise with Forbidden Knowledge News, email me, forbiddenknowledgenews at gmail.com. We look forward to all our new partnerships. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about higher and lower magic, but before we get to that, uh, secret societies, do you think that they're are clandestine factions or secret societies that basically get together and control the world like some conspiracy theorists believe. You know, that there are these clandestine secret societies that have, um, you know, been around for thousands of years, not necessarily Freemasons, you know, maybe other mm -hmm. um, magical organizations that get together and basically make decisions for the world. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Well, the thing about secret societies is, is I see 
secret societies and religions as the two sides of a coin that was created by, um, how would you put it, a type of human. Because I m- mentioned if you know humans are able to develop themselves, we'll use a Nietzschean term. There's man and then there's, what is man? Man is not a means to an end. Man is merely a rope. And on one end is the animal and on the other end is a superman. And that rope stretches over an abyss. So there's kind of this struggle that you make and you get to this end. But when a superman arises or a being that's fully developed and has its faculties intact, it can see into the internal, the metaphysical worlds. It can perhaps manipulate to some things where uh, uh, elemental uh, powers in this world, what what does that being then do? It can turn around and it can speak to the world and tell masses of people, like, this is the path that you take, or it can turn to just the few. And so religions are the result of men who have, and men and women, who have achieved that state. They've gone up a hierarchy. They've become godlike, but they've remained in their human vessels. And they try to teach other people techniques and systems to develop themselves. And this is what becomes a religion. Whereas secret societies are that, but you could not in reverse, but it's where the Superman has gone, these people aren't ready. I'm just going to teach the few. And there's somewhat, advantages to that. Like if you just have a few, it's very hard to corrupt, but, and it perpetuates through time to a degree much easier. Like then if there's some conspiracy theories in some circles that talk about some magical societies that have perpetuated and survived all the way from Sargon of Akkad, the original uh, ruler who, who, who was the king of the Akkadian empire, which was the empire that came after the Sumerians. So there's this long, tradition, you know, traditions from ancient Chaldea, which is, you know, a, a country where around where Babylon is. Chaldea is famous in occult circles because it said that's where astrology originated from. But this, the problem with the secret societies is, is, you know, you can develop yourself one way or you can develop yourself another way. You can crystallize something within you. And you can, you know, kind of leave this world and I mean, look down on it and maybe help people from the spirit world or reincarnate and help people physically, you know, come back as a master. But there is another type of person who awakens. And when they awaken, they decide to awaken in evil for evil. And there's a somewhat cosmic mystery or reason why that happens. But it's said that that's a mystery, but that does happen. And so these people who awaken in evil for evil you get this break. So there's two types of societies. There's schools of regeneration and there's schools of black magic then, or low magic. But in this case, I'll use the term black magic to make a point. So these black, and this is like a horror, I always say it's a horrific idea because if someone's truly awake, then they can perpetuate their consciousness even past death. So if you find a black magician or if you find and a tr- one of the true elite who manipulates the world and you kill them it does nothing. They just take a new body. There needs to be some other process. There needs to be some other revolution that needs to take place. But so there's my, when I look at secret societies, that's what I see. A lot of the societies that you can just look up on the internet, you could say they're good. They're, um, you know, like Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. A lot of the Rosicrucian societies, they're fine. Freemasonry is interesting because I kind of cut Freemasonry in two, into continental Freemasonry and English Freemasonry. English Freemasonry 
was very much that ideal of it's a society where men came and met at a level, whereas continental Freemasonry was very much more, it was only aristocrats and there was some interesting things that happened on continental Freemasonry. But a lot of those societies, they're made to regenerate man. But, you know, with Freemasonry, because of the way it's structured, it's easy for a black magician to come in. And if there's a level 33 Freemason who falls to black magic, he can easily corrupt everyone beneath him. But, you know, anything with hierarchy could be like that. But so, yeah, perhaps there's factions in different societies that are good and some are bad. Some, maybe there's all this fighting behind the scenes. It's, it's one of those questions where it's like, you know, uh, I'm I'm not a master, so I'm not like right. peering into the eternal worlds and being like, yeah, man, I know exactly what's going on. But that's the aim. That's why I want to like kind of increase awareness of these things because there are legitimate masters who left like proper literature, and there are kind of groups that you can kind of semi join. And maybe maybe they're a little insipid, like they only meet like once a week or twice, once a fortnight or something. But you can use that as a base, and you can start to study. You can start to develop things in yourself. The whole point is, if people genuinely awaken, genuinely awaken their powers, and we start to see into the internal worlds, then we can actually be at a place where we can initiate true change. If we're all continuously bound by the third dimension, you know, learning, a, we're, we're always going to be, I don't know, extras in the TV show. We're not going to be the main character. We're not even going to be the comic relief side character. We're just, yeah, it's there. Things can never truly change. If we stay this way, we have to, as Gurdjieff put it, the mystic Gurdjieff, we need to, man is a machine, but he has the potential to be so much more. Earlier, you were talking about um, how you contacted, um, you know, you can contact angels, um, gods, and kind of work with that energy. And, um, you know, on this opposite spectrum, we have demons. Now, um, is this just, are these actual conscious entities that we're talking about? Or is it just kind of like an archetypal energy? Um, or is it a mix of both? Yeah, to a degree, you could say it's a mix of both. I mean, what is consciousness? What is man? What is man really? <laughs> but consciousness in normal people is very different. It's very, uh, I don't know, it's not stable. In someone who's developed in a true initiate or an adept, consciousness has a more continuous uh, attribute to it. And then to a god or an angel or whatever's in between or and beyond, it has there's a some there's a different kind of connotation to it. It can survive without a physical body consciously, and it can hold certain energetic attributes to it. So these, yeah, so these beings that you kind of work with, I sometimes I don't I, you know, I use the word angels, angels and gods just to kind of get let people grasp a concept, but sometimes it, that in and of itself, it's it's just kind of a concept that you kind of overlay. It's it, in a sense, it's better to say almost better to say celestial entity, but that almost sounds kind of uh, bland or lifeless in a way, but celestial entity from my perspective is probably uh, a good descriptor of what you work with, but it's not the way that works as well. You're not necessarily working with that entity every single time. So there's one, like what way to work with one of these things, there's a, it's like a kind of a prayer or a, like a kind of a mantric sort of ritual script you can read, but it's called the clavicle of Solomon. 
clavicle just means key, but there's, you know, there's a book called the key of Solomon, but there's a specific like invocation called the clavicle of Solomon, but you kind of say that out. And then at the end, you basically chant the name of an angel or a God that you want to initiate contact with. But it's not like that God immediately comes or something. It can just be that that God sends its energy to you. It sends a part of itself. It doesn't, you know, you know, if you, if you summon, I don't know, the president of a country, the president may come or he may just send like a, a send a message or a text that's there's two completely different things, having the thing in front of you and having just the energy. So there's a, there's an occultist, a female Rosicrucian called Dion Fortune. Which book is it? It's either applied. What is it? Applied magic or maybe training and work of an initiate where she kind of talks about that. The working with gods and angels is, you know, you don't, in the beginning, you probably just get the phone call or the text message, or you feel uh, energetically different when you make your petition. But as time goes by and you start to awaken or you start to get a more, um, sometimes you have spontaneous visions, sometimes you, uh, you start to see things, then a more of an interplay, a more of a relationship can be built between those entities than at the beginning. Oh, okay. I see. Um, now, what are there any other like types of beings between angels? Like any um, other like yeah. possible you could consider extraterrestrials or something like that, or different dimensional I mean, beings? Yeah. Well, I mean, angel. You you could say angels and um, gods yeah. are other in the other dimensions. Yeah. But um, there's. I mean, there are different people. Different people have made different hierarchies. I would say. I would say yes, but like. I know once again the naming angel god or oh, there's even the daemon as the neoplatonists would yes, say I was gonna not, ask not you demon about that too. daemon yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah the da the daemons are you could say an in are they yeah they're intermediary they're between gods and humans i'm not sure there were, there's a specific neoplatonist his name was eamblicus who he was very big on the hierarchy of being and moving up that hierarchy whereas a lot of the other neoplatonists like uh Plotinus were more like there's a soul and a world soul and you just align yourself to the world soul and he kind of had this Buddhist enlightenment just kind of let your soul be absorbed into the world soul whereas Iamblichus was very much there's humans and then there's these kind of arcanitic entities and then there I think he I think he went daemon and there's like a higher and lower daemon maybe and then there's like angel and then there's different and then there's like a higher and lower kind of angel and then like angel archangel and then there's god but um a god and then at the end at the very top there's the absolute where all issues issues forth but yeah there's the, that's the i i kind of like that hierarchy but the you know the names in the end are almost are somewhat ir uh, irrelevant you merely can tell a being via it's somewhat its energy or where it's from so a good way to extrapolate or to look or to understand the different levels of creation is you could look at an image of the Kabbalah, uh, the Kabbalah being that it originally comes from the Hebraic tradition, but it's since there's different versions of it. There's a Christian Kabbalah and there's a Western Hermetic Kabbalah. So you can kind of look at the Kabbalah and you can look at the different spheres and the lowest sphere of Malkuth or the kingdom being the physical plane. And then the next plane, Yesod, or the foundation, you could see that as like a plane where certain maybe 
you know, elemental spirits hang out and then above in the astral plane or mental plane, you can, astral and mental plane, you can see that there are some slightly higher spirits, some more, more angelic kind of spirits hang out. And then in the causal world, finally, you get the, you get the real shebang. There's the angels and gods in there. And then up, up there, there's different degrees of beings live uh, in higher regions as you reach them. So no, it seems like it, like a, yeah, yeah. It seems like it'd be dangerous, it'd be extremely dangerous to work with these lower uh, density beings like demons, and uh, it seems like it have some kind of karmic repercussion. Uh, would you agree? Yeah, yeah. There's, and it, there's an interesting tradition around demons because once again, just like how you can become an angel or a god, you can also become a demon. So there's some odd mystery in the abyss which is why people become demons like there's something at the bottom of the abyss because in the same way that there's a heaven that reaches an absolute there's the abyss the avici the inferno and this also has layers a good um example of that is dante's inferno where he kind of goes through the layers of hell you could kind of say there's different like layers of the abyss like that so going deeper and deeper and deeper there's different regions of demons and perhaps you could say these are different, yeah, all the all the kind of different types, but they they themselves have their own attributes and their own powers as well. But I don't know, there's a certain there is a certain cost to working with them. But it once again, it depends on the some people talk about saying, like, you know, angels have more of a requirement to them, not that you need to pay for an angel to work with an angel but with an angel there needs to be a certain affinity like you need to be quite pure there's a, to, i'm kind of rambling but to give a story that highlights what i'm trying to say is there's one i think it's a story of eliphas levy or eliphas levy he's a famous occultist french occultist and there's a story of eliphas levy where he wanted to do some kind of working so he did this ritual to summon an angel and the angel came and presented itself to him but then the angel he had just shaved before doing the ritual and so he had like a shaving mark and there was a drop of blood on him and as soon as the angel saw the blood it just immediately left like angels and blood don't mix but it was like oh the angel left and so it's like oh and so then he summoned up a demon to do the same job that he wanted to do so it's this kind of Ugh. so oh. demon demons don't really care if you're filthy but with angels you know if you ever read any grimoires on angel magic, there there's all this like, you know, going through stages of purification, and then you got to do like certain prayers to God, and then you got to like, you know, set certain intentions, and then you summon the angel. So, I don't know some people, some people who become I don't know too utilitarian, maybe maybe they're just like I just get it over, just work with the de as long as you have your protection up, you you can work with the demon, but uh, as long as it's once in every while, it's okay. But you know that's a uh, that. That, that's a little dangerous. That's dangerous thinking. Well, doesn't the demon want something in return? Or is it, you know, just uh, a guarantee well, that it it'll be able to kind of play around and, and do what it wants, you know? Uh, no, if you summon, well, the whole thing is, is you, if you're a magician, proper magician, practicing or a sorcerer or whatever you want to call it, when you invoke a demon, you evoke it with its, via, via your will. So you summon it, you force it to come in front of you. You don't necessarily need to uh, have any payments. The whole idea of like a sacrifice or an animal sacrifice, that actually has to do with um, planetary magic. So if you, if you want me to go into that. Sure, yeah, definitely. Planet, 
planetary magic, you know how, you know how when you go to like, I don't know, psychic fairs or new age fairs, everyone has like kind of crystals and stuff. And they always say like, mm, you know, this crystal's Jupiterian or this crystal's from Venus and it helps with relationships. Those <laughs> yeah. correspondences all come from the ancient kind of planetary, the planetary magic times back in the day where Christian theologians would make all these correspondences to planets and they decide angels to planets and plants to planets and metals and stones to planets. So Jupiter, like tin would come from Jupiter and then the specific angel like Zachariel would be attributed to Jupiter and a certain animal like uh, the eagle or the horse would be attributed to it. And the whole thing is, is they had this uh, idea that the planet sends down cosmic energies. So it's just like, so the planet then is the physical vehicle of a god. Just as this planet isn't just a rock, it is a living organism, a living life that has its own consciousness, its own world soul. A planet also has its consciousness, also has a world soul itself. It's an, an intelligence. It is an intelligence which can interact with you, to, so to speak, but it sends its energy uh, to the planets. And this energy just, you know, kind of bounces off or it gets absorbed by certain things and certain things that have a proclivity to absorb a certain energy then has an affinity with that planet. So Mars is iron and all things that are red and, you know, the ram corresponds to iron, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the idea is, is if you want to work with a uh, ritually work with the energy of that planet or the angel from that planet, you kind of build an altar. And if you want to do, you know, uh, work with the sun, you would use some certain magical sigils that have to do with the sun and you dress in gold and you, maybe you'd have a hunk of gold on the altar and certain, and you work with Mikael and you have some candles that are perhaps yellow or golden and you'd work like that and you'd summon, and that would help with the summoning. So this concept came that if you get an animal that corresponds to the planet and you kill the animal because that, there's planetary energy in that animal. If you kill it, a large amount of energy is dispersed all at once. When an animal just dies in nature, it slowly leaks out the energy. But if you sacrifice an animal, a huge amount of force is released in that moment. So in that moment, you can then summon something. And then there's all this force around that you can then manipulate with your will and do a certain practice. And that's one thing, because the planets, they correspond to angels, but also there's the negative side of them that they also correspond to certain demons. So a lot of demonic magic also has planetary uh, connotations to them as well. Like Andromelech corresponds to Mars or Moloch is Saturnian. That doesn't mean Saturn is evil. There's actually a God and a Olympian spirit and a celestial angel that also corresponds to Saturn, but Moloch is also Saturnian. So, you know, sacrificing some, doing something very black and dark and covering the, the Saturn, the color of satin is black and you know having onyx or lead around and doing certain things with sulfur and certain narcotic drugs also said to correspond to satin and certain things like that then you can summon malak and do all, do what you want you know like that but so there's that that cor that that connotation to it but that's where the whole idea of sacrificing comes in you sacrifice an animal because there's energy in it and it's released all at once so you don't need to make make a big altar and get the drapes out you can just get an animal and be under the stars and you know cut it open and then use your willpower to and i guess like human something. sacrifice would be the most extreme yes. form of that you know yes because humans condense all of the uh, all seven of the planetary energies so if you get a human and a very pure human i.e a virgin and you sacrifice it then you get into some very dark stuff because then you can you have a titanic amount of energy is released 
That's very interesting. Um, now, I want to talk, you mentioned sigil magic. Could you go into sigil magic a little bit? What does that involve? <laughs> uh, well, there's modern day sigil magic, where people use the kind of an artistic sense to create a sigil uh, with an artistic sense, but also there's an intention behind it. And then they usually charge it via some means, uh, sometimes using concentrative kind of, uh, they concentrate on it and imbue it with a type of meditative concentration. Uh, and then burning it, the function of it is somewhat like manifest, you know, the manifesting kind of thing, but you have an intention, you turn it into a sigil and then burning the sigil. When you burn something like a petition, like you can kind of uh, do a petition and burn it. it. When you burn something, it goes, it says it goes into the astral plane. So when they burn their sigils, that sigil goes into the internal worlds. And because it has that intention, it then moves in the internal worlds. And once again, it, changes certain things in the internal in the higher realms and then that emanates down into the physical so you can affect things physical physically by setting your intention by creating a sigil with an intention setting it and charging it meditating on it continuously and then either burning it or sometimes you don't need to burn it you could say that's what um some gods are merely that, or maybe some, like in the Buddhist tradition, some what they call yidams, like some, if you just see them kind of pictures of, they look almost demonic, but they're, they're meant to represent certain attributes and have certain functions. And the, the reason why they look demonic is because in a lot of Eastern traditions, the only thing that scares away a demon is a bigger demon. So outside a lot of um, sometimes Tibetan temples and sometimes certain Chinese temples, they have like a demon statue. It's not because they worship it. They just have it there to scare away other demons. But it's like that you concentrate on it and it sends that intention into the internal worlds and it then has, the, has an effect in the physical. So sigil magic is like that in the, there's different, that's what people think of when you think of sigil magic nowadays. In the old, how they did it, uh, how they usually did it with ceremonial magic, like an angel will have its own sigil. So that sigil is like, is, is like a name or yeah, it's like a signature of that angel. Some of the sigils that you see are actually created by taking the name of the angel, turning the name into numbers and then putting the number on a magical square and going through a tracing uh, technique and you kind of create the sigil that then corresponds to the angel. So then you can just focus on the sigil and maybe summon some of that angel force. But there is how ceremonial magicians usually do that nowadays, or it depends what school, in some hermetic schools, when you work with angels, the whole idea is you try to connect with the angel by continuously working with them. And then at a certain point, they it's in specific schools where they teach a type of automatic writing. So you, you connect with the angel. And then at a certain point where you've got this connection that's strong enough, you go into an, a trance state and you allow the angel to take over your hand and it automatically writes a private sigil for your use. So it's like a private telephone number, like a, a business can have a ge generic telephone number and then you can have the, the mobile of like the owner. That's how, that's how that kind of works. So there are some secret sigils that, but not secret, more like personal sigils that some magicians may use for specific angels that you may never see, or they may give and say, oh, this is the sigil I used. And so there may be traditions that have certain symbols that you don't kind of see, or that's, you could say that's where some of the sigils come from. They either use this, mathematical technique or they use this technique of you know working with automatic writing or 
there's something to do with the aesthetic sense and building an intention, which then that's more of the manifesting kind of the modern sigil magic. But yeah, that's my understanding at least of sigil magic. I'm not a, I'm not, I don't claim to be a sigil master. Right. Well, earlier we were talking about um, source and you said that there's something kind of behind source or beyond source, a creator of source. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about that? It's, it's like a, uh, you said it's kind of like a void or, or something like that. Yes. Well, I mean, how you describe source or all, there's, in the Hermetic tradition, they say the all, and the all is everything, even things that are uncreated, everything that exists and everything that doesn't exist is in the all. But how does the all create then? Because then you get this uh, contradiction. If the all is everything, then it can't create something out of something else because then that something else is something else and you wouldn't have the all. Would it divide itself and create something? What if it divide itself, it would no longer be the all. So there's this contradiction of creation and how the Kabbalists in a certain uh, schools of Kabbalah reconciled this is they used the, um, it has a specific name. I think it's called Simtsum. And that's the name they have for this principle. But the idea was, is you have this all, this expanse, a circle without a point and without a circumference, just infinite being. And how it creates is it doesn't create, it withdraws. So the first thing it does is withdraw and it creates a vacuum, a void. And then it puts something into that vacuum. You know, something interesting to just go off on a tangent. I was kind of online and, you know, with some friends and we were kind of talking about something. And then someone posted this little video of, it was like a three minute YouTube video and it was titled Sonoluminescence. And I just watched it was three minutes of a scientist talking about it, but I was absolutely fascinated by it because what it was, was, is they found a way to basically get a light to generate within water. But how it functioned was, is you have a vessel of water that's completely sealed and you have a single air bubble in it. And then you send a sound wave into the like vessel of water. And when the sound wave hits the air bubble, it creates light. And I was just like, what? And it's beautiful as well. If you just type in sonoluminescence in line, sonoluminescence, S-O-N-O, -O, luminescence, the you get this beautiful image of this kind of water, this kind of space. And then there's just this beautiful blue kind of glowing light, just kind of pulsing like literally like a star, like a star just kind of there. And it's beautiful. Cause I was like, Oh my God, like in so many traditions, they talk about the word or singing, like in the Christianity, it's in the beginning, there was the word and that was with God. And in, even in the Buddhist tradition, they talk about the primordial Buddhas that sing the world into creation, or like there's a breath out. There's always sound. Sound has this mystical quality that's always um, present in creation stories. And so in this, there was this connection of like, there's this vacuum and in a vacuum light appears when sound is applied to it. So I was like, oh my God. So you could see how there's this all, this substance that then withdraws, creates a void. And then within that void, it sings. And then creation happens within the void. So 
Yeah, that's I very know, like, interesting because you hear you could say you know, something like that. A lot of researchers talking about in in ancient times that they would use frequency or sound to build or create. Um, that's so that's a, a fascinating thought that you know sound could be a creation tool and have so many properties that we don't understand right now. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, there's I well yeah there's a lot of things that they do hide from us and but yeah that was something beautiful that was something yes, beautiful definitely but that's that's how I kind of visualize it. And then when you hear all, you know, scientists talking about quantum fluctuations and all that, it kind of just makes, it makes more sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, I think if we, you know, focused a little bit more on sound technologies and frequencies uh, in our mainstream science world, which they probably already have it figured out. They just don't want to tell us, you know, some of these <laughs> factions, but who knows? That's a, that's yeah. a whole nother show right there. Um, now I'd like to know, for in your own life, um, practicing magic, uh, what are some of the most profound kind of results that you've seen um, during your years practicing magic? Oh, that's a little interesting. That's uh, that's a very personal question. Uh, off the top of my head, uh, a lot of some of them I do want to keep personal, but I don't know. There's some. With some, some, well, some could be you could say negative would be in a way negative things can also be positive because negative things then impulse you push you forward, like having certain experiences with certain vampiric e entities on the astral or wow. seeing a kind of a dark a creature in the corner of the room or something. But something more uplifting would be. Uh, it, it's weird because they are personal in that sense. I, like, I, I'm not I, I'm not at the level where I can be like, yeah, man, I totally I was concentrating on a like something in the corner of my room and it just lit on fire. Once <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, something very personal. Like, we all are an emanate. You know, when I talked about that emanation thing, there's something in the internal world that emanates. That implies that we are not just this. There's something in the internal world that we emanate from, and we have. We've kind of forgotten it. We've lost our connection to it. But there's like you could say a little valve that opens up. And I know some of my best experiences are just kind of connecting with that, whatever you want to call it, the oversoul, the higher self. But it's just, I don't know, that moving towards that is the most know, enriching thing. It, I, you know, in the sense, it just made me who I am. I was on a completely different like life path. And sometimes when I like, I have visions of what I would be like if I didn't walk down this path and it's not, not good. It's not yeah, good. It's more it, of like self-improvement. Yeah. It just did everything. It, corre it corrected me in all kinds of ways. Like, you know, before I started on this path, I was just, you know, in my mom's basement, you know, just no job, no prospects. And then it's, it's weird. Some people, they get a life. And then once they've kind of balanced their life, then they go into like a magical school. For me, it was the opposite. I was in complete chaos. And then I found magic. And it just corrected everything and made made my life easy. And now I can, well, I still, I still struggle. We all struggle <laughs> in a time like this. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's now, great. Now, uh, how is there, how much of a danger is there? You know, you mentioned you've come across vampiric entities. You know, how dangerous is it to practice some of these practices? And, you know, how, how much protection do you need against some of these entities when doing some of these practices? Protection is always good. If you have a protection, any protection practice you want to do, I would, yeah, I would hi highly recommend. There's, the whole danger though is, 
Here's the thing that you don't want to consider is, is these beings come to you whether you're awake or not. It's the problem is, is what the real thing is, is you should, you should be practicing it, should be practicing. You should be awakening. Cause then when you wake up, that's when they're like, Oh, he's awakening. And then they kind of leave you alone. But if you're only like half asleep, like the, the one I had with a kind of vampiric entity, I was, it was an astral experience you could say, where I was asleep at night, but awake. And I was kind of walking around in this big black thing with kind of red eyes came up to me, but it's like in that, in that astral experience, I was also in the, I w at that point in time, uh, how, how would you describe? It? I became identified. My mind was kind of taking over. I wasn't kind of believing what I was seeing. And I kind of, I kind of paid the consequences of that, but it, it wasn't anything too extreme. It was, you know, a one week recovery was easy, but it's like that stuff's happening to us all the time. Like who knows how many mental disorders would be fixed if, you know, we start taking care of our energies, if we start, you know, working with the consciousness, if we start work, trying to work with the being of the higher self, if we start trying to transmute our energies instead of just wasting them. It's that internal work is what you should use as a foundation. And, and then, you know, doing like elaborate psychical exercises and trying to manipulate the world, you always comes you know they can come next that is good because in the end it's a type of proof and skepticism can be a big block and there's that um there's that line the the only rock that skepticism cannot shake is the rock of experience so to experience something and you know to see a, a miracle or a manifestation is always good but really you want to be practicing the internal arts continuously I'm trying to, you know, fill up the body with energy so that then, you know, this part that's usually empty can fill up and then activate. And then certain energetic systems, which are just closed in normal people, start to get energy flowing through them and different things start to activate. That's, you could say, this goal. That's when you become a different type of human. As, or as Gurdjieff would say, that's when you become like the fourth type of man. Whereas this world is ruled by man one, two, and three, but we, we lack the fourth man. That's fascinating. Um, Adam, I want to thank you so much for coming on this fascinating information. For, for people that are maybe interested in getting into magical practices or learning more about the occult, what are some maybe books or some, some reading that they can do to kind of get them kick-started? Oof. Yeah. So, I mean, I have some authors that I like, some more controversial than, uh, than others. One of the less, least controversial ones who's easy to get and she wrote in English, so there's no translation issues, is Dion Fortune. You know, her books, the most simple basic book is like Sane Occultism by Dion Fortune. And then you can go from there and read like Secret Orders in their work, Applied Magic, Training and Work of an Initiate, those kind of books. But books by, you know, Franz Hartmann, uh, Samael Vior. Rudolf Steiner was amazing. Same with, I mean, it depends on your flavor as well. Like if you just want to practice magic and uh, maybe reinforce the body and maybe try and get some uh, something physically manifesting or something like that, or do some kind of have awakened powers, maybe Franz Baden, his book, Initiation into Hermetics. That that's a good book. You can consider there's people like that. Yeah. At, at the moment I'm reading a little Julia Savola, but I haven't finished it. So I'm not going to, I don't like recommending things that I haven't read, but, um, yeah, those look up those authors. Elias Levy, he's another one who's good. He's I, I approve. I approve. But, 
but um yeah yeah there's those books if if i could recommend maybe like a list yeah it's, training and work of initiate is definitely like a must read day spring of youth with with the adepts is an interesting book because it's just a novel by a, a Rosicrucian called Franz Hartmann, but it's just, it's it's like 100, 190 pages or something. You can read it in a weekend. It's just amazing. Uh, there's kind of an, there's an, it's a novel about an astral experience that he had, but he kind of talks about the universal mind and certain internal alchemical things. And it's a good starting book. Well, I mean, you know, things like Carlos Castaneda, they're good as well. And, you know, Buddhist texts, but yeah. The, for the Western tradition, those are the names I kind of focus on. Very cool. Now, do you have any um, website, social media, anything that people can look for your work? Uh, no, yeah. I don't. I don't. I, 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 I think there's plenty out there already. So if I can just be a signpost that points to other things that are good. Right. Uh, I, I, yeah. I don't really have anything. Well, fair enough. Uh, it was great information. And I'd love to have you back on in the future. Yeah, sure. It'll be my pleasure. Yeah, we only kind of scratched the surface of this, some of this stuff, so got plenty to talk about. Thank you very much. Thank All you right. Very much. Well, until next time, everyone else, have an excellent evening.